You're listening to Zeidler Group's Legal Zeitgeist podcast, the funds law podcast series that helps asset management firms reevaluate and revolutionize their current approach to investment funds law with the latest technology, legal and regulatory compliance insights, and best practices. This is Kunal Grover. I'm your host for today. I'm head of business development at the Zeitler Group, and I'm joined by my colleague, Robert Boyle, who's head of legal in Ireland at the Zeitler Group. Robert, first of all, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Kunal. You're def- definitely a tough man to catch hold of. So I'm <laughs> glad you could take out the time for us. Uh, I'm not going to make your life easy here today. We've got quite an interesting topic, and I personally have been getting quite a few inquiries about this upcoming change in marketing materials or marketing communications. You know, start us off, what are the ESMA marketing communications guidelines? If you could just briefly tell us what that is. Thank you very much, Carl. As you say, it is quite a topic we've been getting a lot of questions about, so I'm very glad to be here and to be talking about it. ESMA marketing communications guidelines were issued by ESMA, the European Securities and Markets Authority, under the cross-border regulation. The cross-border regulation it entered into force on the 2nd of August of this year. And under Article 4 of the Cross-Border Regulation, ESMA was mandated to develop guidelines on marketing communications to ensure that, that there's a harmonized practice across the EU in regards to well, what is a fair, clear, and not misleading marketing communication. And that's what ESMA have now, have now done. I've issued these guidelines. That's very interesting, Robert. Obviously, the Cross-Border Regulation came into force on the 2nd of August. When do these changes come into force, actually? So uses management companies and AFIMs will have to comply with the guidelines by the 2nd of February, 2022. That is, just for background, six months after the official translations of the ESMA marketing communications guidelines into all the official languages of the European Union were published. And I think you answered one of my questions there. I'm assuming they uh, apply to obviously usage management companies and AFIMs. Would that be the scope of it or is there a wider uh, group that this might affect? It's a good question, and, and it does primarily apply or apply in the first instance to uses management companies and to AFIMs. But really, all marketing materials for usage are in scope, regardless of who they are issued by. So, for example, it'd be quite common for a MIFID investment firm to issue marketing materials for usage. And it is not the case that just because the marketing materials are issued by a MIFID investment firm that these guidelines do not apply. Our advice is that they do apply in those circumstances. They apply to all usage marketing communications. Yeah, that's quite significant if I can put it that way, because obviously, I guess as a product manufacturer, you also have to ensure that delegates or counterparties are complying with these requirements. You sort of have to look at the universe of marketing material being produced and make sure that there's uh, compliance with regulations starting from February next year. Indeed. Uh, and actually, this is quite a controversial point during the development of the guidelines. They wanted to put into the guidelines that usage management companies and AFMs would be responsible for the content of all marketing materials, even those issued by their delegates, uh, for example, distributors authorized under MIFID. They actually took that out of the final version of the guidelines. And you know, the guidelines are a little bit unclear about exactly who is responsible for ensuring that the marketing materials comply with the guidelines. But what is absolutely crystal clear is that they do apply to all marketing communications for usage, be that 
issued by the Eustace Management Company and for AFES issued by AFM or by a distributor, perhaps authorised under MIFID. And maybe I just might go on to add there, marketing communications is a very wide concept. It doesn't just encompass kind of the traditional things you might think of, like, for example, a fact sheet or a pitch book. It could encompass and absolutely does encompass websites and social media communications, tweets, posts on Instagram, uh, posts on LinkedIn. It might even encompass emails under certain circumstances. For example, an email sent to one individual by a member of a sales team at a, 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 an A4 uses management company, I think you can make a good argument that that's not a marketing communication. But if you send out a mass email to 100 or 200 or 500 potential investors, you'll perhaps use something like MailChimp to get information about who's opening the email and so on. What are they looking at? That is quite definitely a marketing communication and is subject to the guidelines. Well, okay. Uh, that's even more significant than I thought, Robert. So uh, I needed a few seconds to digest that. That's certainly um, something that really, really is quite wide-ranging, more than I actually anticipated at the start of this podcast. I think one natural question that comes to mind is, is there some sort of difference uh, on how the requirements apply to professional versus retail investors? Is there any differentiation or does it apply across the board uh, it applies across the board, and this is actually quite shocking. What the guidelines require is that any marketing communications for a fund that is open to retail investors must be fair, clear, and not misleading for retail investors. So just to play that out and explain what that means, let's say you have a USATS and maybe with quite a complex strategy, and while it is in law open to retail investors. In practice, it is only marketed to professional investors. If the usage manager company in that case produces some marketing materials for that usage, and, and those marketing materials are only intended for professional investors, nevertheless, what the guidelines require is that the marketing materials are suitable for retail use, even if they are only intended for professional investors. And for me, I have to say that's quite shocking and quite illogical, but that is absolutely what the guidelines require. The logic that ESMA has for this requirement is they say it's it's impossible to distinguish between marketing materials intended only for professional investors and marketing materials intended for all types of investors, including retail. And the only way to distinguish is by the type of fund to whom the fund is is open. Conversely, one positive aspect of that is that, of course, an AIF that can only be marketed to professional investors, the market materials for that AIF must only be suitable for professional, professional investors under the guidelines. I mean, I guess USITS manages mostly that, you know, even though a USITS fund in principle is a product that can be made available to retail investors, it's a lot of times we find that certain promoters only focus on professional investors, even though they have a retail type fund. I guess those are the ones that are going to be highly impacted by this. Uh... And I might just add, it remains to be seen how the market will react to that. I imagine there'll be a lot of disquiet in the market around this requirement and We'll see how asset managers react to this requirement. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely interesting. I mean, you know, we've had some initial conversations with some, you know, fund promoters and asset managers, and the response 
hasn't been entirely positive, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> and they're certainly seeing this as quite a burdensome uh, piece of regulation that's come in that uh, really doesn't look at the reality of how fund distribution works on the ground. And, you know, let's say the uh, experience levels or of certain types of investors, you know, they may not require the same level of regulation for certain types of investors. I'm talking about the professional versus retail uh, investor base, but that, that's that's probably another topic for another podcast at some stage. Maybe to dive into some of the specifics around the regulation, I know in the past uh, there has been a lot of changes or let's say a lot of focus on how past performance is displayed. Does this regulation at all tackle past performance and how that's displayed? It does, absolutely. And it makes a significant change to how past performance of usage um, in particular must be displayed. The primary piece of legislation in Europe governing how past performance is shown was Commission Delegated Regulation 2017-565, Article 44 of that regulation. So it was a delegated regulation under MIFID, and it specified how MIFID investment firms had to meet the fair, clear, and not misleading requirement for all communications issued by them. And one of the things it said is that where you're showing the past performance of a financial instrument, you must show where you have five years or more of past performance, you must show at least five years. The effect of the marketing communications guidelines for use is to change that from five years to 10 years. Whereas up to now, we would have seen typically fact sheets showing five years past performance where funds have in excess of five years and up to 10 years past performance, I'd now expect to see a minimum of 10 years being shown. So significant impact on past performance there. What about risks, Robert? How risks are dis- disclosed in marketing communications? Paragraph 36 of the guideline says is that the disclosure of the risk profile of the promoted fund in a marketing communication should refer to the same risk classification as that included in the kid or kid. And that particular paragraph of the guidelines that hasn't changed between the consultation draft and the final draft or the final version of the guidelines. The European Fund and Asset Management Association, IFAMA, they're quite critical of that, of that requirement. I'm going to read out from IFAMA's response to the consultation paper. While we support risk and reward information that is fair, clear and not misleading, we have serious concerns regarding the currently proposed wording at paragraphs 33 to 38 of the draft guidelines. We do not agree with ESMA's suggestion to refer to the same risk classification as that included in the KID or the KID, so the, the PRIPS KID or the USIS KID, as suggested in paragraphs 34 and 35, as their reference could be misleading for the certain type of investor which do not understand their nature and extent. We are against the mandatory disclosure of the SRI or SRRI in marketing communication instead of more targeted information about risk towards those type of investors. The way I understand this particular paragraph of the ESMA guidelines, and I think the way IFAMA understands it as well, but IFAMA of course can speak for themselves, what it actually requires is for the SRI, the, the risk classification from the kid, to be shown in all marketing communications. That's quite a, a significant change. I know many asset managers don't show that at the moment. In some markets, it's actually more common to show the SRI in the 
in fact sheets, for example, or other marketing communications. For example, I would have seen it done in France in the past. And in the Netherlands, they're, I suppose you might say, ahead of the ESMA guidelines because for years they've had in their national law a requirement to include a, a particular diagram or, or picture, which is a risk warning. And it includes the SRI from the kids in all marketing communications. This is definitely a, a change of practice, and I don't think it's going to be welcomed by asset managers. Again, you know, there probably is more room to debate what that ESMA, what exactly that paragraph of the ESMA guidelines, ESMA marketing communications guidelines means. But my view for what it's worth is that it does require the disclosure of the SRI in all marketing communications. That again seems quite significant to me because um, obviously I know that um, uh, for both for the usage kit and for PRIPS kit, there's also the monitoring of the SRRI and the SRI, and that you obviously have to make updates to the kids. Now, obviously, the kid regular, uh, the kids, uh, you know, for example, the usage kit, if there's a change in the published SRRI versus the actual one for 16 consecutive weeks, then that triggers a need to update the kid. I'm not sure how that approach would work in relation to marketing material is it sort of every time there's a change of <laughs> SRRI you would have to update your marketing material make, make that available would there be some sort of time frame to monitor would it be in line with what's happening for usage kids for example so that's a question that came up to my mind straight away when uh, you mentioned this change uh, well, I think one of the requirements that's actually in the regulation itself and it was also in the, the usage directive prior to the coming into force the cross-border regulation is that Marketing communications are consistent or more accurately do not contradict the prospectus and kids. So what I'd expect there is that once you update the SRI in kids, you must then update the SRI in any marketing communications within a reasonable time frame. Okay, that, that makes it slightly easier because at least then you follow the same timeline. So that's certainly yeah, welcome in some ways. Uh, that's uh, quite significant. Again, to, to talk about the, the re regulation and what's coming up, I also have heard some questions around translations and that there might be requirements around translating some of the marketing communications. Any insights on that, Robert? Unfortunately, it's not good news again the asset managers are going to have to translate marketing communications into the national languages of the countries, the EU or EEA countries where they market their funds. So paragraph 17 in the guidelines requires is that marketing communication should be written in the official languages or in one of the official languages used in the part of the member state where the fund is distributed or in another language accepted by the national competent authorities of that member state. I have to bear in mind that these marketing communications guidelines, as we discussed earlier, apply without distinction to professional and retail clients. And you know, if, if we follow the wording of the guidelines to the letter, then you'd have to translate all marketing materials for professional clients as well as retail clients, which seems like a very burdensome requirement indeed. To our knowledge, no national competent authorities, in other words, regulators in any member state have yet indicated that any language other than the official language of the member state is acceptable for marketing communications. And I think it's also worth noting that this requirement did change between the draft guidelines and the final guidelines. And the draft guidelines, they contain language which 
was arguably less clear, but more flexible. I'll just read out what the draft guidelines said. They said, when promoting a fund open to retail investors or potential retail investors, marketing communications should be considered clear for the target audience of the promoted fund if they're written in the official languages or one of the official languages of the member state in which they're provided. However, when promoting a fund open to professional investors only, marketing communications may be considered clear for the target audience of the promoted fund if they are written in a language customary in the sphere of international finance. Additionally, the information should be seen as not misleading when it is consistently presented in the same language throughout all marketing communications that are provided to each investor or potential investor, unless the investor or potential investor has agreed to receive information in more than one language. So maybe just a pull that apart a little bit what was nice in there for asset managers was that it said that when putting a fund open to professional investors only so for example an AFE that was marketed using the afmd marketing passport a language that's customary in the sphere of international finance could be used in other words english could be used that guideline was taken out between the draft and the final version and to give a little bit more background there has always been this fair, clear, and not misleading requirement for marketing communications under the usage directive, at least going back to uses for, and I, I expect much longer. There's always been the question, well, um, if you provide marketing communications or to a investor in a language that is not the investor's mother tongue or not an official language of the country where the investor is resident, is that fair, clear, and not misleading? And I think that's always been a an open question. You, know, I think, in the past, you would have advised. Well, in a professional investor context, the answer is probably yes. But in a retail investor context, probably no. But now, what Esma really seems to be saying is that it, it is not fair and clear and not misleading if you provide a marketing communication to an investor. Remember, that's any investor, professional, retail, or otherwise, um, in a language other than the official language of the member state where the investor is resident. Again, I'd say it remains to be seen how the market will react to this. It's quite a far-reaching requirement if you follow it to the letter. I have great sympathy for asset managers in trying to figure out how to comply with these requirements and what to do. It certainly seems like another change that isn't sort of in line with how the market works. I mean, it's not uncommon for market material to be translated, but that's normally dictated by market dynamics, you know, market practice, uh, rather than just a you know, general rule of thumb. Thinking here straight away is increased costs for asset management firms if they had to translate their marketing material, which is, let's assume, in English most of the time, into different languages, even if it's just three or four languages, that could lead to a quite significant increased costs. I completely agree, Kunal. And you can say there's an irony here in that the purpose of marketing communications guidelines is to promote a harmonized approach among regulators across the European Union. And the point of having a harmonized approach is to try to make it easier for asset managers to distribute their funds on a cross-border basis so they aren't met with differing requirements from regulators in different member states. But I think there's an irony in that precisely the opposite has been achieved. Perhaps ESMA have actually succeeded in making it more difficult in some ways for asset managers to distribute their funds on a cross-border basis within the EU. Totally agree with you there that it seems to have done the opposite of what it was meant to achieve. Robert, I mean, just obviously we've discussed quite a bit here. I mean, if I was sort of uh, working at an asset management firm and I was sort of in charge of dealing with marketing communications, I'd be really stressed out at this point. Any advice, any tip 
how would you advise someone that has to sort of digest this and see how to manage this upcoming change internally? There's some requirements that are very it was specific and easy to to address. For example, the requirement to show the 10 years past performance. Then other requirements, like the requirements around translation, ensure that all marketing communications for usage are suitable for retail investors. I think I'd want to be talking to other industry participants to see where they're going to go on this before jumping to make radical changes to the practice. Just to add, I think I'd also advise that you go ahead and add the SRI to all marketing communications. It, I know it's not an easy thing to do, but it is easier than some of the other things that the SRI marketing communications guidelines require. So it's probably fair to say, Robert, there's some maybe easier and quicker wins and there's some more substantial probably challenges that you know managers will have to deal with. I'm just thinking operationally as well, you know, for example, something like fact sheets that get produced sometimes on a monthly basis on the first of a month to be able to get all the updated data input from the portfolio managers and then manage the translations and still be able to publish fact sheets, assuming that you have to translate them on the first of every month is going to be at least quite difficult in my opinion because already producing them just in English is quite difficult and managers do quite well to you know, whoever's able to do it on the first of the month to do that. That's one another area where I'm seeing probably quite a bit of complication should there be a translation requirement. Yeah, I think another practical thing that managers can be doing is to try to determine well, what communi- marketing communications they have, what do they have that's in scope, you know, fact sheets, pitch books, are there other things that they have and use? Their websites, for example, have they ever been reviewed for compliance with MIFID or um, perhaps FCA COBS requirements or anything else? And if not, they certainly should they certainly should be reviewed for compliance with the ESMA marketing communications guidelines. Well, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Another thing that just really popped into my head was uh, obviously some regulators also require that uh, they verify marketing communications. I'm thinking of Belgium here, and probably if you're distributing in Belgium, <laughs> you might want to think about your approach there because it's not only about meeting these regulations. It could also be that the regulator wants to see and verify the marketing communications. And I've known in the past it can take some time to do that in Belgium. Indeed, Belgium would be the most extreme example where all marketing communications for retail must be. Uh, reviewed in advance by the regulator before they're used. In France, there's a similar requirement, but it's difficult to advise on exactly what marketing material must be submitted to the regulators or to the MF in advance before it's used. In those jurisdictions, uh, particularly Belgium, are, are challenging. And if you are producing retail marketing materials for Belgium, it's worth putting in a lot of effort in advance before you go to the approach to regulator for review of the marketing communications of the particular marketing communication because the regulator will come back with many, many questions. How do you approach Belgium? Because you might be going through this back and forth and then the data that you have in this marketing communication is out of date by the time you get the sign off. It is difficult. I mean, you probably only deal with, say, a, a recurrent retail marketing material like a fact sheet where, you know, okay, the data has to be updated every month, but the, the content is fairly static. Robert, I'd like to thank you. Obviously, I think it's a topic that has gone a bit under the radar, but people are slowly starting to realize this is coming down the line. This can be quite significant and might have a lot of operational challenges as well as costs. We'll have to see how the industry reacts to this upcoming change. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I'd be very interested in from hearing from your good self as well. 
Robert, thank you so much for your time. It was always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Carl. You reached the end of another episode of the Legal Zeitgeist podcast. Connect with us at zeitler.group to subscribe. Thank you for listening. The Legal Zeitgeist podcast is provided for information purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. Professional legal advice should be obtained before taking or refraining from any action as a result of the contents of this podcast. All rights reserved.